you're a sinner saved by grace, say amen. 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 Alright, well I'm glad that y'all are all here, and hopefully I got all my ducks in a row. I hope y'all enjoyed Thanksgiving and time with friends and family and all the food that comes along, the turkey, the ham, the mashed potatoes, the sweet potatoes, the pecan pie. I feel my sugar going up as we speak. Um, remind you, stick around, fellowship meal right after the sermon. Uh, the high school youth are having a good fundraiser here and they're going to uh, appreciate it. I think it's hot dogs, so it should be a good meal. This morning... I want to try and touch on a part of the Bible that's kind of tough. If you really get to it, it's extremely tough. It's the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, but the information contained in its 22 chapters really provide a warning and a motivation for non-believers and believers uh, to learn and study from this book, maybe more so than we typically do. And there's a lot of material to cover, but this morning I plan to focus on Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. And if you're able, I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea turned into blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of this star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And the fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars. A third of them turned dark. A third of that day was without light, and also a third of the night. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I just ask you to be with me this morning and let this message be the message you want your people to hear. Thank you for the blessings that you show us on a daily basis. And thank you for your word, that we have an opportunity to study and learn from it. In your son's precious and holy name I pray, amen. Y'all may be seated. I'm going to turn this down just a tiny bit because it's going to squeal, I'm afraid. You know, looking out here, seeing this balanced group of people here, we've got a lot of kids. And you know, like when we do our children's moments and, and we have things at church with children, it's so neat to see the innocence of a child. In our home, we're blessed to have sailors. And uh, she keeps Misty on her toes. But one of the neatest things that I have is when Sailor hears me come home, we got this doggy gate, and it keeps Clifford, our 90-pound moose of a dog, away from the Thanksgiving ham. <clears throat> if you know the story, you know. Uh, anyway, back to the story. Sailor hears me, 
and she comes running to that gate. And as soon as she sees me, there's this loud exclamation of, John! And it got me to thinking, why aren't we that way when we think about Jesus? Why aren't we excited that He has given us the opportunity to have eternal life with Him? Also, two fundamental truths about the world. God created everything good, but sin has kind of corrupted everything. Without this understanding, life can be pretty confusing. And that explains why our desires are so often at odds with what is truly good for us. I think back like, you know, my desire for pecan pie is not good for my blood sugar. We have those temptations. But what God creates out of His goodness, man can decreate, if you will, through sinfulness. Our deepest longings can be satisfied in light of our ongoing sin. And that's the puzzle that can only be solved with Christianity. Corruption can't be simply wiped away. It must be judged. And if God is just, then He must punish every sinful word, deed, and thought. And that's where the sound of the trumpets is relevant. And I'm primarily focusing on Revelation 8 this morning, but I want to try to get just a brief summary of Revelation prior to chapter 8 to get things kind of caught up. The structure of the book of Revelation is significant for interpretation. The book's not in chronological order. It's cyclical, if you will. Instead of one long storyline where we should perceive the vision of these same judgments, each new cycle provides greater detail of those last days. In there it discusses the seven churches. They were the primary focus of the first three chapters of Revelation. And although John could have sent his revelation to more churches, seven can be used to symbolize the complete universal church. The seven seals were the primary focus of chapters, uh, chapter 4 uh, through most of chapter 8. Once the Lamb was recognized as being worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, the Lamb began to do so in chapter 6. There was silence in heaven for 30 minutes. During that time, the prayers of the saints ascended to God. Then the section concludes with the final judgment at the second coming of Christ. And now the seven angels begin to blow their trumpets. But what about the purpose of these trumpets? Trumpets are used by musicians to accompany choirs. Military officers use them to signal the beginning of the war um, or to gather troops in battle. Judges 6.34 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Aborizonites to follow him. And also to use, uh, it's used to warn of an impending attack, such as in Joel 2.1. God is calling the church to prayerful endurance and preparation as they witness the powerful display of His judgment. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they depict events that occur between Christ's first and second coming. But there's a distinction in the way that they're portrayed. The opening of the seals brings great consolation to the people of God. The sounding of the trumpets brings great woes upon those who are not 
the people of God. Many interpret the trumpets as warnings, but that fails to notice the connection between this passage and the plagues recorded in Exodus. Most of the trumpets allude to one of the plagues that fell upon Egypt. God sent the plagues in order to harden Pharaoh's heart, knowing that they would serve as a bold contradiction to Egypt's idolatry. All who observed or experienced the impact of the plagues would know that the God of Israel was the true sovereign God. The plagues were not meant to bring Pharaoh into repentance, but to harden his heart and display God's power. Pharaoh was still responsible for his actions. He hardened his own heart too. But God was not disappointed in Pharaoh's refusal to repent. Everything happened according to God's plan. The plagues were more judgment than warning, just like the trumpets in Revelation. And this leads us to the impact of the trumpets. Several of the seals portrayed limited devastation, which is consistent with the first four trumpets. Let's discuss a third of the earth. God sends hail, fire, blood upon the earth, scorching a third, scorching a third of the land, trees, and the grass. We think we've seen it bad here with a drought, and y'all can remember just a few years ago the sight of those wildfires south of town and all that smoke. But that's nothing compared to one-third of our planet. The seventh plague that fell on the Egyptians was one of hail and fire which burned up the vegetation and the trees. This allusion to Exodus causes some to anticipate a literal fulfillment to this first trumpet that clearly has not yet occurred. We have not seen a third of the earth scorched by hail, fire, and blood sent from heaven. Should we expect a literal or figurative fulfillment? To answer that question, we have to remember the difference between a historical narrative and an apocalyptic literature. The most common word in this passage in Revelation is third, actually occurs 14 times. And it seems likely this is due to the influence of Ezekiel 5, where Israel is divided into thirds for subsequent judgment. Ezekiel was told to shave his head and his beard and to divide his hair into three equally measured portions. A third was to be burned, a third was to be struck with a sword, and a third was to be scattered in the wind. This physical demonstration was fulfilled when Israel suffered pestilence, famine, death, and scattering during the Babylonian invasion. That's from Ezekiel 5.12. Notice then the portion of Israel that was burned up literally suffered from famine. It was not a literal fire, but a figurative symbol of judgment. This famine that is described in a figurative language may, may be representing a literal famine or an intense suffering in general. Both are possible that span the entire age. And later on, Ezekiel describes the final defeat by raining upon the nation blood, hailstones, and fire. It describes an ongoing battle that will not reach its conclusion until the end of the age. And again, this apocalyptic language is not meant to convey the literal fire from heaven, but the crushing defeat of all who stand opposed to God in a partial sense now and in full when Christ returns.
we move on to the third of the sea, this fiery mountain is thrown into the sea, turning it into blood and killing a third of the sea creatures and destroying a third of the ships. Similarly, in the first European plague, Moses literally turned the Nile River into blood. Should we interpret this literally? Many have argued that this is fulfilled with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius way back in A.D. 79. And that would make sense with the symbolism, but as devastating as that eruption was to Pompeii, which absolutely was buried under the ash, it came nowhere near the destruction described in this trumpet. If volcanic eruption is a plausible interpretation, it would have to receive multiple manifestations of fulfillment to affect anywhere near a third of the sea. On the other hand, literature often refers to nations as mountains. It seems best to interpret the imagery as symbolic of a great and wicked nation being overturned by God. This is similar to the angel who dis, uh, describes the destruction of Babylon by throwing a great millstone into the sea. Jeremiah referenced Babylon after her judgment as a burned out mountain. That's Jeremiah 51.25. These figures of speech convey God's power over wicked nations. Now let's talk about that great star, Wormwood that fell from heaven and corrupted a third of the rivers and the springs of water, causing many people to die. It's unlikely this is referring to a literal meteor. How could a meteor impact a third of the world's fresh water supply? Some folks have suggested this could be depicting the Chernobyl disaster back in 1986 because Chernobyl is a Ukrainian word for wormwood but it's hard to understand how that relates to a star falling from heaven. Plus, even though that impact was very significant for those people, it's nowhere near affecting a third of the rivers. The term wormwood, which was a bitter plant in Palestine, occurs frequently in Scripture as a metaphor for the bitterness of suffering. Jeremiah prophesies that God would feed lying prophets bitter food and poisoned water Solomon warns of his son of the adulterous woman who is bitter as warm wood. Rather than expecting a meteorite to wipe out a third of our water supply, we should expect to witness the judgment of God's enemies which result in bitter suffering throughout this age. About a third of the sun, the moon and the stars, they were struck so that a third of their light was darkened. The ninth plague was carried out upon the Egyptians was darkness. The illusion does not imply a literal fulfillment to this trumpet any more than it is likely with the first three. The sixth seal depicted a black sun, a covered moon, and stars falling to the earth. According to Joel, the day of the Lord is marked by the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. If the sun, moon, and stars are shining at all, this judgment must precede the final judgment pictured in the opening of the sixth seal. It would also make sense of their partial darkening. While the unsealed believers are judged, believers have been sealed for protection from the harm that impacts the earth or the sea or the trees. And all four of these trumpets have in common, they affect three parts of the created order. 
the parts that are struck suggest that the basic content of creation is being systematically undone. Though not in the same order as it was created in Genesis 1. The elements that are affected are light, air, vegetation, sun, moon, stars, sea creatures, and of course humans. We might conclude that there's nothing encouraging to say about Revelation. And this book is definitely not an easy book to follow. Each trumpet blast brings further destruction. But Revelation depicts the victory of the Lamb. As the vision unfolds with greater detail, the judgments that occurred during this present age, we need to keep in mind about God's sovereign purpose. God cleanses the corruption of creation by bringing an increasing amount of judgment upon it. As this world becomes increasingly worse, we look forward to a new earth that has been cleansed of corruption. The same Lord that formed creation must cleanse creation of its corruption. Each blast of the trumpet represents a process of this. The judgments that follow undo the work of creation. Paul teaches us in Colossians 1.16 that by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and all things created through Him and for Him. Yet what makes Christianity different is that it also, through the blood of His cross, that reconciliation can occur. The one by whom all things were created by His death on the cross in order that those who were alienated from God because of their evil deeds could be brought near Him again. Believers by their own sin and rebellion against their Maker have been recreated into the image of His Son by faith so they might be presented in heaven holy and blameless before God. It is in the light of that truth that we hear the summons of the trumpets and report for duty. Even as the Lord slowly but surely removes the corruption in this world through judgment, His Spirit is slowly and progressively transforming us into the creatures that He intends us to be. Let us submit to Him and walk by faith in the righteous garments that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You know, as I prepare to wrap up this message, can I challenge you today? We're sitting at a table that's full. And a lot of us are still starving. Hear me out, because back when I was in school, uh, there was a place that some of us guys would go hang out. It's my buddy's grandmother's home. I wish she was sitting over here today. Um, there were always lots of food and snacks around, and her door was always open to us. And she never asked us to bring one thing. If you went hungry at her house, that was your problem. Unfortunately, there are too many believers that are starving for the truth. Folks, I have all the food we need right here. You don't have to be a pastor or a scholar or a teacher. The table is full and spread wide. And it's an open invitation to come and dine with the king and to eat the bread that fills us beyond measure and to drink from the fountain that never runs dry. Most of us have this food in our home, on our phone, in our car. So if you're going hungry, then that's your fault. 
And you can't blame it on a church, a pastor, or a person. The father hands us the fork and the spoon and says, the door's open, y'all come eat. You know, uh, another wonderful lady in our church once told me that she went this far, but after reading one word from God, it took her light years further away. Not only is that good, that's the power of God's word. And God doesn't ask us to bring anything. He just says, come and eat at the table. There ain't no reason why any of us should be going hungry, folks. But you say, John, I don't understand anything I'm reading. And I understand Revelation is a tough, tough book. But I'll also say, was there a point in your life when you didn't know how to chew food? Well, guess what? You learn by chewing one bite at a time. Let's don't overcomplicate it. Belly up to the table, folks. Start eating. There ain't no need for you to be starving. This book of Revelation is best consumed one bite at a time, right, Mary? And I invite you to join us tonight at 6 o'clock. We have a wonderful Revelation Bible study. It's a verse-by-verse deep study. We've been going on months now. We've got months to go. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 9. And I hope you all are prayed up and studied up for that. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for the book of Revelation and for its words that foretell what is to come and what we need to do to get prepared. I ask this morning that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, give them the courage to begin that journey to you. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to join our fellowship of believers. And if you need prayers, we'll pray for you. We just, Lord, we just thank you so much for what you do for all of us on an everyday basis. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.